This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Wednesday, April 11th. Uh, And before we jump into the podcast, we wanted to tell you about an awesome giveaway that Book Riot is doing that you should definitely go take advantage of. Um, Book Riot is giving away 15 of the best new mysteries of the year so far, all written by diverse authors. Uh, The giveaway is open until May 9th, and there are a bunch of really, really exciting new titles uh, in the pile that you should go check out. So uh, if you want to go find out more, you can go to bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway to see the titles and enter. And with that, we are going to get into the podcast. So Alice, hello. How are you? I am pretty good for a Wednesday. How are you? Also pretty good for a Wednesday. I felt like a very Wednesday, Wednesday. And it's been snowing up here in Minnesota. Um, so it is, that's very distressing to me. And I am ready for the spring to arrive. Um, in Chicago, it snowed uh, two days ago. And then today it was 72. Oh my God. It's cold. So that's... We're supposed to get snow on Friday and Saturday that's like going to be rain and then turn to ice and then be snow on top of it. And it's just, I feel like the spring is never going to come and we've entered an endless winter. I am so sorry. I mean, I understand that feeling. Uh, I am also still recovering because I went to C2E2 on Saturday, which is kind of like Chicago Comic Con, like a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my feet are very tired because my friend and I just walk the show floor for like hours uh, every year that we go. We also uh, dress up every year. So I went as Janet from The Good Place. He went as Michael. And it was I saw that on Instagram and you were so freaking adorable. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, I got that dress on ModCloth. They basically just sell a Janet dress. um, And I don't remember the name of it. But if you just look at their, I think it's blue and not purple, but it basically just looks like Janet's costume. Um, Outfit. Yeah, it's great. And I got so many awesome comics. I'm really excited. Cool. Well, that sounds really like no nonfiction, though. Nonfiction comics are hard. That's a whole that's a whole genre we could go into sometime because uh, it's it's an interesting one. Um, so in terms of follow up for this week, I just have one thing that I wanted to mention, and that's a piece of nonfiction news. Uh, and is that it, uh, HBO Documentaries has acquired the rights to All Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, which is a true crime novel that or true crime book that you read and was very scary and very impressed with. Um, And they're going to turn that into a documentary series, uh, which that is pretty exciting, I think. Yeah, that's going to be really, really good, especially, I mean, I feel like HBO tends to do a pretty good job with their documentaries. Um, And I know that Mm -hmm. Patton Oswalt wouldn't sign off on it unless it were really well done. Uh, So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So when we hear about that, we'll pass that along. But yeah, I thought that was kind of an exciting piece of information. So Okay, do we want to launch into sponsor number one for this episode? I, 
I think we should. Awesome. Uh, our first sponsor is The Myth of the Nice Girl by Fran Hauser. Uh, leading executive and investor Fran Hauser offers practical advice to young women in business. She dispels harmful assumptions about being nice, proving that kindness is not a weakness. Instead, it can create powerful advantages that will lead to success in one's career and beyond. So uh, this is pretty much for the audience left out by books like Lean In and Hashtag Girl Boss. These two major books found huge audiences, but still left millions of women feeling alienated by the nature of their tone and advice. Uh, Sandberg appealed to an older cohort with established corporate careers, while Sophia Amoruso attracted a younger, more rebellious crowd. So Hauser's speaking here to the women in between these two groups, so sort of smart professional women early to mid-career who know who they are and what they want, but are looking for realistic advice on how to take their career to the next level. A refreshing dose of forward-looking feminism. Too many career guides for women subtly reinforce damaging stereotypes, and Hauser avoids such traps by emphasizing the need to abandon outdated playbooks and to create a more authentic, self-affirming approach for young women. And again, that is The Myth of the Nice Girl by Fran Hauser, and we thank them for sponsoring. Excellent. That sounds sounds like a good one. I, I read Lean In, but yeah, I can see wanting for somebody who's not quite as a... Uh, uh, settled in their careers, kind of, kind of where that, where that might be. So cool. All right. And so then we're going to jump uh, into our first segment, which is always new books. And I, Alice has a really exciting one lined up first that I'm curious about. So go ahead. I'm so excited about this one. Uh, so my first pick is The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World by Steve Broussat. Uh, that comes out April 24th from William Morrow. Um, the, basically, he is giving you a history of dinosaurs. Um, Steve Broussat is a young American paleontologist who has named 15 new species and led groundbreaking scientific... 15? 15. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading it and he's like going on this dig and then he they basically found this whole he talks about this new golden age of finding dinosaurs and we're learning so many new things, which is why he's able to write this book. The cover is gorgeous. Um, I was very not to be swayed by that, but uh, I am. <laughs> so it sort of walks you through what the earth was like. Uh, back then, what led to the evolution of the dinosaurs in the first place? And how do you think about how they survived when other things didn't? You know, how dinosaurs kind of ruled the earth, mm -hmm. not to quote Jurassic Park, but always. And uh, it's it's great. Um, I haven't totally finished it yet, but uh, it has really beautiful like drawings and illustrations. And um, to... A quote, is it, I don't think it's from Alice in Wonderland. Yes, it is. What is the use of a book without pictures? I ask you. So uh, <laughs> again, that is The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World uh, by Steve Broussat and uh, April 24th. So next week comes out. That sounds super fun. Yeah, it's great. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I also have a kind of natural history book to recommend as part of new books. Uh, and the one I'm going to suggest is uh, The Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson, which is also out April 24th. That's from Viking. Uh, and this is Nature True Crime, which is a like weird summer genre that I have 
apparently been reading a lot of lately. Um, and so this book starts uh, with a 2009 theft of hundreds of rare bird specimens from the British Museum of Natural History. Uh, and so Walker Wallace Johnson hears about that theft sometime later and decides that it is really curious and very intriguing. And so he wants to like dig into it and figure out like why someone would do this. Like, why would you steal a bunch of dead birds? Uh, which is a good question. Uh, and so he also wanted to find out what happened to the thief and what happened to the birds and like what the whole story behind this was. So so the book is kind of an investigation into the crime and looking at what it is to pursue justice in this case of stealing dead birds. Um, and like your dinosaur book, the cover of this one is also just, it's gorgeous. Like I got a review copy in the mail and I opened it and I squealed because the cover is just like, has these beautiful blue feathers on it and it just looks completely appealing and exciting. So um, this is what I'm really looking forward to picking up soon. Oh, I was going to ask if you'd finished it yet because I want to know why they stole the dead birds. <laughs> I'm very interested, but I guess I'll have to read it. Um, no, I-, I have not. But so the guy who committed the crime is a 20 year old American flautist named Edwin Rist, who was at he did a performance in London at the Royal Academy of Music and then took a train and went to the British Museum of Natural History and then stole all of these birds. So like that doesn't that's crazy and doesn't make any sense either. So I'm very excited about that part also. Oh my gosh, I need that book. Um also I saw on Instagram, let's we're just obviously creeping each other's Instagrams all the time. Uh I saw on Instagram <laughs> that you had this and I was so jealous because it is such a gorgeous book and it, it looked fascinating. Um so yeah, great, great pick there, Kim. Natural history for the win. Yes. Um I uh my next book is sort of a shift and it's a it's a little uh depressing. But um, that's because it's a subject that needs attention in order to be fixed. Um, So my next pick is The War on Neighborhoods, Policing, Prison, and Punishment in a Divided City by Ryan Legalia Holland and Daniel Cooper. It comes out April 17th, so the day this episode is being released from Beacon Press. Uh, So this is about... When it says a divided city, it's talking about Chicago. Um, This is a city I've lived in for 10 years. So what initially sort of piqued my interest in the book is the cover is um, a a view from sort of the outskirts of the city looking into downtown, which is very like from the west side. And this whole book is focused on the west side. Uh, The publisher's description says, for people of color who live in segregated urban neighborhoods, surviving crime and violence is a generational reality. As violence in cities like New York and Los Angeles have fallen in recent years, in many Chicago communities, it has continued at alarming rates. Um, And just a side note, at my church, every Sunday, we read the uh, names of youth 18 and under who have been killed by gun violence in Chicago. And there are almost always names every Sunday. Um, It's Mm -hmm. a huge problem and something that we don't really see if we like a lot of my friends Mm -hmm. live on the north side. And this is mostly happening in the south and west sides. Um, So I wanted to call attention to this book. I've read a little bit of it so far. It's really good. It's by two sociologists uh, who have spent a lot of time on the West Side. Um, but I feel like it. I, I think a lot of attention has been sort of growing, um, especially because of our president's consistent comments on Chicago. Um, and but so in yeah. some ways, it's it's good that we're talking more about it. Um not in the way he is, but uh, just drawing attention to the problem and trying to think of ways to actually fix it instead of just ignoring it, which again, having lived here for 10 years, a lot of ignoring happens. Um, So this, it's uh, really, really good. It talks about uh, 
how the, when the main investment in a community is policing and incarceration rather than human and community development, that amounts to a war on neighborhoods. Um, and so they're just kind of focusing on the West Side and talking about how uh, basically all of this happened and how the West Side became how it is now um, and what we can do to improve it. Anyway, so again, serious topic, but worth looking at. It is, again, the war on neighborhoods, yeah. uh, policing, prison, and punishment in a divided city. And that is out April 17th. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, I read a book a few years ago about Milwaukee and about the education system in Milwaukee. And a lot of the book was about how segregated neighborhoods had contributed to the um, the education disparities in that city because people in um, majority black neighborhoods just like weren't getting the kind of support and school funding that they needed. And so that kind of all feeds in on itself. Um and that neighborhoods being segregated results in all sorts of other problems for the people who live in them. Um, so yeah, sounds super interesting. Um, so my uh, second book for new books is, I don't know, somewhere maybe in the middle of all of these. And it is a book called The Opposite of Hate by Sally Cohen. And this one is out already. It came out April 10th from Algonquin Books. Uh, and this is a book about um, hatred and trying to kind of explain and understand it a little better. So um, Sally Cohen is a progressive voice, and she was a progressive commentator on Fox News for quite a while, um, and now she's on CNN. Uh, and while she was on Fox News, I didn't see her on Fox News, but she pre predictably like butted heads with her uh, co-workers and other commentators on the show. Uh, but she also like made friends and became kind of close with some of these people. And so um, after the 2016 election, when we've had just like such really divisive rhetoric, um, both from people we agree with and people we disagree with. Um, she decided she wanted to take a look at some of that and the uh, epidemic of hate that has kind of connected with that. So the book kind of connects to psychology and sociology and neuroscience um, and then looks at history and kind of current examples. Um, I'm in the second chapter right now and she's writing about internet trolls and how she reached out to people who trolled her on Twitter and tried to like talk to them and understand what they were doing and kind of the ones that would talk to her and the ones that wouldn't and what she's learning from them. Um, and part of the reason this book intrigued me when I got it what, or when I got a copy of it is because um, on the back, you know how they have all those public blurbs from different people saying how great books are? Yeah. Uh, this one has blurbs from Elizabeth Gilbert, who I love, and then Sean Hannity blurbed this book. And he says that somehow in spite of disagreeing politically, we have navigated a friendship that transcends everything else. And I just thought like if this woman could get Elizabeth Gilbert and Sean Hannity to both blurb her book, that seems like something that, like she has something to share and something to say about getting along with people who we disagree with like very fundamentally in some ways. Um, Gosh, that's like, um, that's like Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, being friends with uh, Scalia. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like even myself, I always think of myself as an open-minded person, but like we can get so sheltered and so siloed and not not always remember that people we disagree with politically sometimes, like we can still get along with them as people in some situations and in some cases. Um, I was going to say some of the time. Some of the time. I mean, there's some stuff that is like really fundamental to people's like civil liberties and personal rights and their safety and we shouldn't tolerate those things. But, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the middle there too. So I'm I'm really curious about that one and I'm I'm hoping to pick it up and dig in a little closer soon. Yeah, no, you've uh, you've definitely piqued my curiosity on that. 
and I just looked her up. She looks very funly opinionated. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so now we're going to shift gears and go into our weekly theme where we put a big topic and share some nonfiction that kind of goes around it. Um, and this weekend we, or this week we wanted to talk about, um, Dewey's 24 hour readathon and good nonfiction picks for a readathon. Um, so first we probably have to explain what the readathon is. Um, and then maybe to chat about that and then get into our book picks. So, um, I can explain the readathon if you want. Yep, go for it. Cool. So Dewey's 24-hour readathon is a thing that's organized by book bloggers. Uh, and the basic idea of it is to drop everything and read as much as you can in a 24-hour period. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff that happens. There's a lot of chatter on Twitter and there's challenges that you can participate in and there's prizes and all of this other stuff. But like the basic goal is to from the starting point on Saturday until the ending point on Sunday, read for as many hours as you can in that time. Uh, and people have different strategies. Um, some people like to settle in with one really long book and other more people, I think, like to read short books and try to read as many books and pages as possible during that time. Um, and I love the readathon. It is, they do one in the spring and one in the fall and they're like my favorite days of the whole year almost. Um, cause who doesn't like an excuse to just like drop everything and, and read and put all of your other responsibilities aside purposefully. Um, I think that's super fun. So have you readathoned before, Alice? Yeah, um, I've done the 24-hour one. Uh, most recently, I did uh, 24 and 48, which is where you read, you know, like 24 hours out of the 48-hour weekend. Um, and then my friends and I actually early on in my book blogging career, we were like, we don't have the stamina for a 24-hour readathon. So we invented the mini-thon which is where you would read for eight hours, but the main focus was on snacks. So, but they had to be, <laughs> had to be mini in nature or at least justified. So, so a lot of like bagel bites and uh, sure. pretzels and that kind of thing. Um, really fun. But the 24 hour one, I always uh, try. I was trying for it. Um, and I'm very <laughs> impressed by the people who can uh, get through it. Have you ever done that thing where you like get a hotel room for it? Because I've always wanted to. Not although about that. Um, and I'll, I'll just say too, like I've never read for the full 24 hours. Like that is impossible for me. Um, at best, I like I'm going to wake for 18 hours of the day and read for a chunk of those. But I always have to take breaks and do other stuff. So it, you don't have to try and read for 24 hours. Like that's just while the, that's just when the readathon is happening. And some people have stamina for that and, and I don't. I'm still impressed by you staying up for 18 hours though. Well, you know, you like get up at like 6.30 and go to bed like a little after midnight. It's not huh. totally insane. Maybe a oh, little yeah. bit. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, nonfiction for the readathon. I don't think a lot of people read nonfiction during the readathon because I think a lot of people think it's like heavy and too long. Um, one of my readathon strategies is that I always try to start out the day with nonfiction because when I get through a nonfiction book right away in the morning, like it makes me feel very accomplished and like I have done something worthwhile with my day. Um and I was looking back at my previous readathon books, and it seems like light true crime is something that I often start with. Um, so one that I read recently that I'm going to recommend is called American Fire by Monica Hesse. Uh, and this is a true story about a string of arsons and abandoned buildings in rural Virginia in like the 20 teens sometime. I can't remember now. Um, and so this very rural, struggling Appalachian farming town community 
people just started lighting buildings on fire and they no one could figure out who was doing it. And it was very difficult on these communities because it was all volunteer firefighters. They had really small police departments and um, the buildings were all abandoned. So like nobody was really in danger. Uh, it was just very bizarre and sort of like taxing the resources of this community. So um the author was a journalist, and so she went down to this community after someone had been arrested and started covering his trial and then went back to write this book kind of explaining the whole situation. And so the book alternates between kind of the stories of the fires as they were happening and then the story of the perpetrator and how he found himself in a situation where he was a serial arsonist. Um, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that a woman was involved and she was manipulative and sort of difficult. And so it's about their relationship and some of that. And so it's about um, the arsons and it's about this love story and it's about um, economic insecurity as it affects this rural community and about agricultural communities that are kind of being left behind in a more technological economy. Um, And it's just a really interesting read and um, really kind of a good one because the chapters move really quickly and um, each of them kind of feels self-contained in some ways. So I really, um, I really like that one. I thought it was, that it was good. Yeah. That sounds um, really great. Yeah. Do you want to share a readathon suggestion? Oh yeah. Let's switch off. Um, so this is kind of controversial for a nonfiction podcast. I actually have two controversial picks for this episode, um, but I think it should count and I will tell you why. So for 24 and 48, I uh, zoomed through this. It was so good. I like just sort of found it randomly on the shelf of a Chicago bookstore called The Dial, um, which is awesome. But this is called The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay. Have you read it? No, I have not. I've never heard of it. I've heard, neither had I, but then all these people were like, oh my gosh, that's like one of the best mysteries of all time. So that's the thing, right? It's classified in mystery, but, and it's part of a mystery series, but again, stay with me. Uh, So basically, Tay wrote this, uh, there's a hospital bedridden uh, detective who is um, bored out of his mind, you know, like lying in this bed all day, and he decides to try to solve a historic mystery. So he chooses Richard III and the two princes to like decide whether Richard III killed them or not. And he basically like does all of this 1950s. It was written in 1951. He does all this 1950s research and looks at Richard III and biographical stuff and like what makes logical sense and what does he know as like a detective and how like people behave and all this stuff. It was so good. And it made me want to join the Richard III Anti-Defamation Society. And I've made fun (laughs) of those people for so long. So that's how strongly this case was made. It was great. Um, so, so again, I feel like it's a little nonfiction-y because there's so much history in it. Okay, but the the guy who's like investigating it—that's fiction. But there's a lot of okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. That sounds really good. So it's it's like nonfiction nestled within mystery. I don't know, but yeah. So it's the again the daughter of time by Josephine Tay, and that's spelled T E Y. I'm just assuming it's pronounced Tay. Um, but yeah, it was uh, one of the best books I've read this year. Actually, I really loved it. Wow. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good pick. Um, I have another true crimey pick because um, I don't know. That just like really during readathons, it's very satisfying. I think they like those. They move along and they have like plot that helps you get through them. Um, so another one I want to mention that I read at a previous readathon is called "The Red Parts" by Maggie Nelson, uh, and this book is a memoir about a cold case and how it affects a family. Um, and so Maggie Nelson, she is an author and she's written many books, but, um, in this 
book, she is getting ready to publish, she's writing about getting ready to publish a book called Jane and Murder, which is an, uh, a narrative in verse about um, her, her aunt who was murdered 35 years ago. Um, but right before this, the Jane and Murder is set to get published, DNA evidence um, collected at her aunt's murder shows that a new suspect uh, emerges for the crime and is actually arrested and charged with it. Um, so for a long time, they had thought that uh, Jane was a victim of a serial killer that had operated in the, the region she lived in. Um, but this DNA evidence comes out and it shows that it's somebody else. And so this guy is brought to trial. Um, and the book is an account of Nelson going to the trial and kind of supporting her mother and what it is like to have this cold case brought back and what feelings it brings back and how her aunt's murder kind of over the time affected her family. Um, and so it kind of jumps back and forth and there are some gruesome parts, but on the whole, it gets a very thoughtful, well-structured, interesting book. Um, and it was, it was nice for a readathon because it, it moves pretty quickly and it's not super long. So you feel like you're progressing through it quickly and it's very satisfying. So um, I really like that one, uh, The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, hmm, I will put that on my list for the, I'm not, I we talked about this before the, the podcast, but I'm not able to participate this year and I'm really bummed about that. But uh, I will, I will do it for the next one, maybe. Um, let's see. So my other readathon pick is Fun Home by Allison Bechdel. So this is a graphic memoir by the, um, I think you just started as a cartoonist, uh, for the comic strip mm, Dykes to so. Watch Out For. Um, and that's where, uh, the Bechdel test originated was in one of her, her comic strips, uh, for, for Dykes to Watch Out For, um, which is, if you don't know, the Bechdel test is, uh, basically kind of a, a very, very basic level, uh, test of, can we say feminism? If it's basically, are there two characters mm-hmm. in a scene or in the whole, I guess, work talking about something together that is not about a man? Um, and it's such a simple test and so many things fail it. Uh, so many. Oh, boy. But um, anyway, so Fun Home is uh, Alison Bechdel's first memoir. She had a second one that came out later called Are You My Mother? Uh, I very much recommend Fun Home. Um, it's a really quick read because it's, you know, in the sort of graphic uh illustrated style it's about her coming out but it's mainly about her very complicated relationship with her father uh who was also gay but he was closeted um it's really beautifully told it there is also a trigger warning for suicide though um so just be aware of that but uh oh also sort of additional note on this that i just remembered um i went to an allison bechdel reading uh years ago actually i think when i had just come out and uh, at the time, I was asking authors to sign their favorite or one of their favorite words in you know, the book that I had them sign. Um, and Alison Bechdel's pick was Renunculus, which is my favorite <laughs> one that anyone has picked so far. So extra props. That's to really Alison good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, can I also throw in like a last minute addition to Readathon picks? Yes. Real quick? It is uh, yes. the the Declaration of the Rights of Women by Olympe de Gouge. Uh, she was an 18th century French feminist, and I just bought this copy on a whim at a bookstore because it's so beautiful. It's by Ilex Press, I-L-E-X. Find it and buy it. It's like, let me look in the back, $15. No, wait, that's Canada. $13. So uh, <laughs> I really love it and it has beautiful illustrations. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> that's excellent. Um, and I'm going to mention two more books real quick because I am going to get to participate in the readathon in a couple of weeks. Um, and so I have been slowly 
putting books aside and amassing a pile. And there are two nonfiction ones that I'm really excited about that I think are probably like top priorities and I should most likely definitely finish. Um, The first one is called Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life. And this is from CL Press and it is out in, I don't know, I didn't write that down. Um, We'll find that out and put it in the show notes. But um, this is about a woman who is autistic but she is not diagnosed with autism until she's in her 40s. Uh, and so this is a book about, she's kind of challenging what we know about it means, what it means to be autistic. Um, so the author, Laura James, is married with children. She's a successful journalist. And so she kind of looks at how autism, without knowing that she had it, shaped her career and her approach and her relationships. Um, so I think it sounds really interesting. And part of the reason it made it on the pile is because it's not super long and it has a big font on the pages, which are two qualities that I look for in readathon nonfiction, because uh, it makes me happy when <laughs> I finish things quickly and the pages turn fast because the font is big, which is shallow but true. Uh, and then I have a giant graphic memoir also uh, on my pile, which goes against my rule to have short numbers of pages, but I'm excited about this anyway. Uh, and the book is called The Best We Could Do by Thebe Wee, and it is an illustrated memoir about um, her family's journey from war-torn Vietnam to the United States. So it's a story about being a refugee and uh, escaping South Vietnam in the 1970s and then what it is like to come to the United States. Uh, and this one has been very widely renowned. It's been a best book a bunch of different times. Um, and I have a beautiful paperback copy. It recently came out in paperback. And um, obviously, like it's about fleeing Vietnam as refugees. So that's going to be kind of tough and heavy. But um, I think it's late in the readathon. I like sinking into a good graphic novel. So I'm excited about that one as well. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So that kind of wraps up readathon nonfiction for now. Um, so we're going to jump in. And before we get to our next segment, go to our second sponsor. And uh, so our second sponsor this week is InstaRead. And you can find them online at instaread.co slash for real. And InstaRead is a service that transforms nonfiction books into 15-minute podcasts. Each InstaRead podcast gives you all the key insights from the book, along with a synopsis, analysis, and commentary. Uh, so if you're interested in self-improvement books, business books, healthy living books, history, psychology, uh, then InstaRead will have something for you. And so you can get a free trial and 20% off of your subscription at instaread.co slash for real. Um, and so it's, it's nice because on... On one hand, you'll truly understand what's inside of books in just a few minutes. Uh, you'll find out what the newest bestsellers are about, and it can save you time or help you pick kind of the next book you want to read by giving you a synopsis of ones that you can choose from. So uh, you can check out InstaRead at instaread.co slash for real, where, like I said, you'll get a free trial plus 20% off uh, instaread.co slash for real. So when we thank them for sponsoring this week's podcast. Hooray! Hooray. All right. <laughs> oh, it's a Wednesday. All right. So next we're going to hop into our third segment, uh, which is fiction nonfiction, where we will pair a popular or recent fiction book with some nonfiction that we think will give you some context or clarity or extra information about uh, the book uh, to give you kind of more to think about. So Alice, you have a book that has just recently come out that you're going to map. So I'll let you go first again. 
Okay, so I just got this in the mail, and I'm really, really excited because it's beautiful and wonderful. Um, it is Circe by Madeline Miller. Uh, she also wrote Song of Achilles, which uh, in my very distracted reading style, I started and fell in love with and talked about how Madeline Miller was going to be my new best friend. And I would tell her how great she was all the time, but then I didn't finish it. But uh, I still bought Circe because it was so great. Um, it's a beautiful book, and it is- a Hold on, hold on. Did you get it as part of that, like, the book was randomly on sale for less than $3 thing that happened on Amazon last week? Yes, I did, Kim. But I got it through uh, Target and not uh, Amazon. Oh, excellent. They, they yeah. I, I got that. this one. I got in my book of the month subscription. I, I got this one. So I already had it in the mail when that whatever happened happened there. And so I was kind of jealous. But uh, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Continue talking about the book. Well, no. So, uh, so I was going to read the basically the, the book description from the book because it's sitting here right in front of me, and I'm looking at it, and it's so pretty. Um, so, in the house of Helios, god of the sun and mightiest of the titans, a daughter is born, but Circe is a strange child, not obviously powerful like her father, nor viciously alluring like her mother. Uh, so, basically, Circe. This is no longer from the book. Um, Cersei finds out that she is uh, she has the power of witchcraft. And uh, this is the Cersei from Homer's Odyssey. Um, and this book sort of goes from her childhood, you know, to when she is banished to this deserted island and then, uh, you know, meets Odysseus and uh, so forth. So I'm really, really excited because Madeline Miller is an amazing author, as previously stated. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's uh, it came out yesterday when we were recording this. So a week ago uh, from when this comes out and you all should go get it, if only because it's it's just so pretty. Um, but my. Nonfiction pairing is my other controversial pick because I was talking with a friend. I kept trying to find books about, you know, Grecian women in history. And it's so densely academic in that category. I don't know why no one seems mm -hmm. to have written some kind of really accessible book about women in Greece. Um, someone please do that. But and then I tried looking up like, yeah, that would be really good. I was looking up oracles and, and histories of prophecy. And if you look up prophecy for books, it's banana pants. So um, that was just sort of like a dead end. So I finally, I was talking to my friend and she was like, why don't you just do the new Odyssey translation? And I was like, does that count as nonfiction? It's poetry. And then we had a whole discussion about where it is in Dewey Decimal and what it should be categorized as. Um, yeah. Huh. So in the end, I caved because it seemed too perfect. So the new translation of the Odyssey is by Emily Wilson. Um, it is the first uh, English translation of the Odyssey by a woman. It came out last November from W.W. W. Norton and uh, Richard F. Thomas of Harvard University called it a staggeringly superior translation, true, poetic, lively and readable and always closely engaged with the original Greek, um, which I thought was a beautiful phrase. I don't know why closely engaged with the original Greek. But yeah, uh, yeah so basically, if you are wanting to hear more about Circe after reading this book, um, then read this new translation of the Odyssey. And by the way, I love the Odyssey. I love it so much. Um, the Iliad, I don't it is banana. It's always, always the Iliad. I don't care about, but the Odyssey is so great. Uh, yeah. So those are tell me more about the translation. Like, what is? I've read a little bit about it, but like, is it significant that it's translated by a woman? Like, how does that affect some of the storytelling in it? 
Do you know? I think or? that she puts more. I I've basically just glanced at it in bookstores so far, but I think she puts more. Um, she gives more care to you know the interpretation of the the female characters, of which there are a lot. Um, but as um, mm-hmm. as Mary Beard points out, the Odyssey is I think one of the first, if not the first, uh, Western uh, appearance of a man telling a, a woman to to stop talking to shut up um she talks about that in <laughs> by the way mary beard's women in power which is another great readathon pick because it's very short um but, uh, it is, yeah. but yeah so i feel like a lot of the translation of the odyssey you know have been very very focused on uh telemachus and his relationship with his father odysseus and odysseus's you know like continual quest to just get home um and but you have penelope and circe and calypso um and it's there's just a lot of amazing uh, women-centered stuff happening. So getting it from getting a translation from that perspective in English, um, which is uh, obviously the first language of you and me, um, is yes. uh, I'm really excited about finally looking at it. I've sort of been on the fence about getting it for a long time. And, and having Cersei, the book come out, uh, has made me, I think, go over that fence. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Okay. And uh, all right, so um, my fiction nonfiction pairing uh, uh, is a book I not super new, but one that I just read recently. Uh, Exit West by Mozin Hamid is the fiction book, and this is one that came out uh, in 2016, I think. I might be wrong about that. Um, and it was on like 10 best books of the year on a bunch of them, or no, I guess it came out in 2017, um, 2017. And it was on a lot of the 2017 best books of the year. It was a finalist for the Man Booker, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. And it's really, really a great novel. Um, and so it is a love story about two, uh, young people that are, they meet in an unnamed country that is on the brink of civil war, um, Nadia and Saeed. And they start in having uh, a love affair, um, but they become very intimate and very close very fast because of there's so much unrest and things happening in their city. It's very um, just, uh, this. I mean, it's dangerous and things are happening, bombs and everything like that. And so they start to hear about... Um, whispers of doors um, and these doors that can take people from one place to another and transport them instantly. Um, And so they, as violence starts to escalate, they decide that they have to leave where they're from and they're going to go through these doors and go to another place. And so the, the book follows them as they go through various doors to different places and cities. So their, their first door takes them to Greece and they're uh, in Greece for a while and um, then they take another door that takes them to London and they are in London w- with a bunch of other refugees and that's about kind of that experience. And then um, they eventually leave London to go someplace else and it sort of follows them as they go through this um, experience. And there's like these little vignettes of other people who go through doors or have experiences related to doors. And it's a really interesting book um, about refugees that doesn't focus on the heroes of travel, like it just gets rid of that part. And it just talks about the experience of like being somewhere new and being somewhere um, different and away from your home and what it means to leave that behind. Um, And I thought it was really a beautiful, beautiful book, um, as many other people have done. Uh, And so the book I wanted to pair it with is one that just very recently came out. And it's called The Displaced. And it is a collection of essays of refugee writers on refugee lives by it. Viet Than Nguyen, who is the author of The Sympathizer. Uh, and so he edited this book and he collected essays from a bunch of different writers who are refugees of various um, from various places around the world. Um, the list of countries where the refugees that are writing or the writers in this book have come from is really impressive. And I didn't 
write it down. So now I, I don't have it. Well, anyway, um, it's a really beautiful collection of essays, um, just about what it is like to lose your home, what it is like to not feel like you have a place where you can come from. And, um, a lot of them too are writing about how they were refugees at one point, either as children or sometime in their past. And now that they are more settled as citizens in the places that they have come to live, can they still call themselves refugees? How does that refugee experience affect their identity and their writing and their work going forward? Um, and the essays I've read in it so far are really, really lovely. Um, and just, I think, important given the political conversations we're having right now about what we what we can do, what we should do for people who are fleeing violence in their communities. Um, and so I think it gives a really nice pairing to Exit West um, and kind of what that is. So the, that collection is The Displaced Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives, edited by Viet Thanh Nguyen. All right. So that is fiction, nonfiction. And so we're going to close this week's podcast as we usually do by talking about um, what books we are reading right now. Uh, and I actually just finished reading a book that also connects to refugees and that kind of thing that I maybe would have recommended if I hadn't just been reading it. Uh, and it's called The Song Poet by Cow Kalia Yang. And she's a Minnesota. Uh, she lives in Minnesota. So that's kind of an exciting Minnesota author connection for me. Um, and so the book is about, um, so in the Hmong tradition, a song poet is a person who recounts the story of his people, their history and their tragedies, their joys and their losses. Uh, and so uh, Yang's father, Bi Yang, is a Hmong, Hmong song poet in his community. Um, and so he is well known or was well known among the Hmong community in Minnesota for, for serving that role and taking on that responsibility. Um, and so his family, uh, they're refugees from Laos who flew or fled through the jungle to a refugee camp in Thailand and then immigrated to Minnesota in the uh, 1970s or 1980s. So um, fleeing from Vietnam and that kind of thing, or Laos, excuse me, during that um, period of time. And so they come to Minnesota and, um, they work in a, a factory to provide for their kids. And so this book is, uh, it's actually her second book. I haven't read her first one, but um, in this book, the first half, Yang kind of takes on the voice of her father and shares his story through what she knows that he has told her and what he shared through some of the song poetry that he um shared with the community. And so she kind of puts together his story of fleeing from Laos and coming to the United States. And then the second half is more her experiences with her father and her experience as a, an immigrant in the United States. Um, and it's just, it's really, it's really lovely. Um, I thought it was, it was well done and um, it made me think a lot about a uh, time and a place and people that I, I don't know a lot about. And we have a big Hmong population in Minnesota. So it was nice to learn a little bit more about what some of that community's experiences have been. So, um, can I yeah, you, I finished that one. Can I yeah. ask you a question about, um, is it done in kind of like, uh, I know it's, I think I'm only thinking this because the word poet is in the title, but is it done in kind of like a poetic style or is it just sort of more like straightforward memoir? It's more straightforward memoir. Um, there's some song lyrics embedded into some of the stories and there's some like opening chapters, um, but the, it's not in verse. It's a, it's a straight memoir. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I, I read, um, I just finished a few days ago and then I had two books that came into the library today that I'm super excited about that I was just going to quick mention. <laughs> Go for it. 
So the first one is uh, Bachelor Nation by Amy Kaufman. And this is a book uh, that looks at the making of the Bachelor TV show, uh, which for all the embarrassing television that I watch, like I actually don't watch The Bachelor, but I am incredible. I know. Is that shocking? I don't even know. Um, I can't so tell if that was a sarcastic like, I know, gasp I, or... No, genuinely upset, but please continue and then I will come back around to this. Okay. So I, I'm I'm not a Bachelor watcher, but I really love... Like, I always want to understand how stuff gets made. And so, like, a reality show like that, like, I just want to understand, like, how it happens and, like, what goes into putting that whole thing together. Because I know what The Bachelor is. I've seen selected episodes and stuff. Um, so this is, she is, Amy Kaufman is a journalist who was a super Bachelor fan and wrote recaps and stuff and was on Twitter a lot. And so she reached out to producers and staff and former Bachelor and Bachelorette contestants and put together this book just about, like, the making of the show and how it happens and what the different pieces of it are. And um, so I don't know. It, I, I just think it looks, sounds really fun and like goofy and getting into something that I am, I'm curious about that I would like to understand better. So now you had, you had a shock to gasp. I have, uh, I have just some quick points on this book. Mm-hmm. Number one is that um, I was going to talk about this on the podcast, but I couldn't get a copy in time for when it came out, um, which was so unfortunate. Uh, I was a sort of like absolutely aghast. I will never watch that show person for a really long time. You know, like this is destroying feminism. Um, but then like three years ago, maybe I somehow like fell into watching um, Chris Souls's season, I think, and was immediately obsessed and by obsessed i mean i don't do like you know like the brackets and all of that stuff but i watch it like every week and my girlfriend (laughs) and i early on in our dating were watching a lot of the bachelor together because it was during one of the seasons and so that was like a bonding thing for us and her she'll have like kind of viewing parties with her friends and they'll all be talking during the show and i am genuinely i'm the one who's like hey you guys (laughs) you guys i'm trying to hear this Um, i need to know what's happening it's a little embarrassing. I do really want to read uh, ba- Amy Kaufman's Bachelor Nation because I want to know like how the producers set up scenes and like all yeah. of that stuff. I follow an embarrassing number of former Bachelor and Bachelorette uh, contestants on Tumblr, not Tumblr. What is it? Instagram. Um, and I have my favorites who are Jojo and Jordan. May their love live forever. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I will finish it and we can talk about it and follow up in the next episode and I will tell you if it was excellent or not and whether you should read it. Um, And the other book that I picked up at the library today that I just wanted to mention uh, is The Curse of the Boyfriend Sweater, Essays on Crafting by Alana Oaken. And it is just a collection of essays about crafting. Uh, And I am very into crafting and like crocheting and stuff like that. So I just, Essays on Crafting sounds so delightful and like I just want to get a bunch of tea and sit on my couch and read about that. So I'm hoping to start that one pretty soon also. All right. I've talked long enough. Your turn. What are you reading right now? <laughs> um, I'm not reading a lot right now. So I uh, I just I wanted to say real quick that I am reading Giant Days, the comic, because I got it at C2E2 and mm-hmm. everyone's been telling me for forever that Giant Days is so good. Um, so I got it uh, for 50% off, actually. It was a, it was a bargain. Um, but nonfiction-wise, I actually realized I have been reading for a really long time because it's just very information-heavy. Um, Daughters of the Declaration, how Women Social Entrepreneurs Built the American Dream by Claire Gaudiani and David Graham Burnett. Um, they're they're not like 
I don't think they're like technical historians or even like journalists. And you can kind of tell that. And that's why I've, I've sort of been spending a long time on it. Um, but they are also very passionate about their subject and have done a lot of research. It goes from the 18th century to, I think, the 20th um, and talking about women social entrepreneurs, meaning like not business, but sort of women who made a difference uh, in mostly uh, social justice. And she does a lot. I mean, women's history, again, especially American women's history is like my main area of study. And she mentioned a lot of people I did not know about. So um, I've been pretty impressed with it from just sort of like a digging up information standpoint. Um, And one thing that I wanted to point out was the Oblate Sisters of Providence, uh, who were a an I think 18th, like late 18th century Roman Catholic sisterhood. Um, it was the first established by women of African descent, um, at least in America, if not uh, anywhere. So like um, this, it's like this convent that started in, I think, Baltimore, Maryland, um, by these four women from a, a Caribbean uh, refugee colony along with this French-born uh, Sulpician priest. And it's super cool. And they did all this stuff towards like educating children, um, especially Black Catholic children in the United States and in Baltimore. And because, you know, Baltimore is like this historically um, like Catholic enclave. So like that part made sense to me. But I, I just did not know that this existed. Um, so she just has a lot of really interesting facts and sort of things that women have done. And then, you know, it's that thing where you're like, Oh, like they did this and this is how they did it. So maybe like I can contribute to something like this too. So it's, it's very nice in that respect. Interesting. That sounds like a good one, but yeah, one that it would take a while to, to read. Uh Excellent. All right. Well, that is all we have for, for real this week. Uh, So you can find both of us on social media. Uh, Alice is at it's Alice time on Twitter. And I am uh, at Kim the dork also on Twitter. Um, And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes so people can find us more easily and subscribe so you can get our new episodes the minute they come out. All right. I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. Uh, Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.